Open your Bible to the flyleaf of your Bible. You know what the flyleaf is, don't you? That's, maybe that's not a familiar term to everybody. That's this part right here before the Bible, before the text begins, where you have some blank pages. Your Bible have that? Now, your Bible on the phone doesn't have that. Let's see. Your Bible on the phone doesn't have any maps on it either. You notice that? But anyhow, that's not inspired. Somewhere in these white pages, draw a little box and write the word, the gospel. The gospel. I want everybody to do that, if you will, because I never want you to ever, ever the rest of your days to wonder where you find the gospel. So write the gospel, and then underneath it, write 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians, C-O-R. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. You'll have a little box there. The rest of your life, if you ever wonder where to go to find the gospel, you'll find the clearest, simplest, plainest declaration of the gospel found anywhere in the Bible. And now we'll turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says you write it in. Why, stand to your feet and we will read the gospel in its clearest statement here in all of the Bible. The message today is entitled, Let's Get It Right on the Gospel. Let's get it right about the gospel, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I begin reading in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Now, that's as clear as you can make it. Paul says, I'm going to tell you what the gospel is. And then he says, which I preached to you, which also you received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some of them are fallen asleep, they're deceased. After that he was seen of James, his brother, and then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as, one, as of one born out of due time. And Heavenly Father, today I pray that you will help me as I preach on this most glorious of all texts perhaps I could, I could select, and that I'll be able to make the gospel clear and plain, and Lord, that your Holy Spirit might work in the heart of every person present. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Today I want to answer the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Probably a large portion of the people gathered here today know the gospel. More people think they know the gospel but might not know it clearly, and so I ask you to begin, write that reference in your Bible so that you'll always be able to find this very clear 
declaration of the gospel. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is acknowledged as probably the greatest Baptist preacher who ever lived. And Spurgeon said, when a man does not make me know what he means, it's generally because he does not know himself what he means. When a man doesn't make me know what he means, it's generally because he doesn't know himself what he means. And so I've studied the gospel a lot here in the week or two past. And I think I know what it means. I want to make it as clear to every one of you so that you also will know clearly, clearly, clearly what the gospel means. Let's begin, number one, with how the word gospel was used throughout history. And it's a Greek word from which gospel or the word gospel is translated. And the word is eongelion in, in uh, Greek. Now, that word looks like evangelism, doesn't it? And that's exactly what it means. Eongelion is translated in our Bibles as evangelism or as the gospel because the gospel and evangelism and eongelion all mean exactly the same thing. In Bible days, though, it was used as a greeting outside of the Bible. And so people would meet a friend, and they might say something like this, do you have any good news for me today? And it was just a form of greeting that they used in ancient times. And then the Roman Empire began to practice what was called emperor worship, or the cult of the emperor. And they actually worshiped the emperor, uh, the Caesars of Rome. And they began to spin the news even in those days. And they, here's what they would always say. Anything about the emperor is considered euangelion. So if he made a speech, it was good news about the speech. If he was a new Caesar came on the scene, was coronated, it's good news about that. If he issued a decree or passed a law, it was euangelion. It was good news. Anything about the emperor was good news. And then we come to the New Testament itself and to the Bible. It's interesting we call the four books that deal with the biography of Jesus, we call them Eongelion, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. And so we picked up that term because anything about the emperor, anything about the king, Anything about our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, is euangelion. It's good news. It is the gospel. And so we come to the New Testament itself, to the content of the New Testament. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, that very early in that gospel, it talks about the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And that's the good news of the kingdom that a Messiah would come, and the Messiah would establish His kingdom. And of course, Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy. He came. Sadly, He was rejected by His people, but He came and presented Himself to them as their new king. Then we come to Acts chapter 20, and it's not the gospel of the kingdom after Christ's death. Now it's the gospel of God's grace. And you find that term actually there 
in Acts 20 and 25, that God, our Creator, through Jesus Christ, He would graciously make it possible for sinful mankind to be reconciled to Him, that people could be saved, as we say, that they could enter the kingdom of God, and that the gospel is the instrument that makes that all possible. And so, nothing is more important today to you and to me than the gospel. I tell you, there's nothing as important as the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've ever listened to a sermon, I hope you'll listen to me right now. Look in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, Paul says, which I preached unto you there in Corinth. So the gospel was the subject of, of Paul's preaching. Paul didn't preach on a lot of unimportant things. He got right to the point. The subject of his preaching when he was in Corinth was the good news, the eongelion, the good news that God has made a way where people can enter his kingdom through their faith in his Son. Look at verse 2 then. Pardon me. No, we'll continue here in verse uh, 1. So first of all, he says, it was the subject of my preaching to you. And then he said, you received it. You didn't reject it. You didn't blow it off. You listened to me, and you actually believed it. And he says, now that's wherein you stand, the third thing. You stand in the gospel. What do you mean by that? He meant that's where you've taken your stand. You've taken your position. I've taken my stand on the gospel. Many of you have taken your stand on the gospel. The gospel, in many ways, the most important thing in my life because I'm depending on it when I close my eyes in death. I'm depending on what I'm preaching to you about today to be my ticket to get me into the presence of God and into heaven. So it's worth listening to, isn't it? You received it, and you stand on the gospel, and look at verse 3 now, by which you're saved. And so if you're saved, you're saved through the gospel is the teaching of that passage there. The gospel is the basis of salvation for us. Romans 1 and 16 is very familiar to most of you. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. If you believe the gospel, the power of God will bring about something very, very special in your life. The new birth, you will be saved by believing in the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel itself is the power of God, the power of God. He uses a Greek word there that translated power in our Bible, and it was dunamis, the same word that we get our word for dynamite from. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the dynamite of God. It will blast the soul of a person and change them for all of eternity is what Paul is saying here. Look down in verse 11. And therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so you, 
believed. And Paul said to the Corinthian Christians, and you believed it. You received it. You believed it. You stand in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God that will bring you to salvation. And he said, you believed it. And that's the key. It's the power of God to them that believe. Now, let's analyze here exactly what is the good news that Paul writes about and that I'm excited about after all these years of preaching the gospel. This is still, to me, the most exciting part of the Christian faith, the gospel itself. And so look with me in verse number 3. I delivered unto you, first of all, priority. This is the most important thing, he says, that which I received by the Holy Spirit as he inspired the writing of the text, how that Christ died for our sins. What's the good news? The good news is Jesus has died for your sins. This is the heart. This is the core. This is the essence of the Christian faith. Whether you're Baptist or Catholic or Pentecostal or Methodist or whatever you may call yourself, there is no way to heaven around this. You've got to be confronted with this. Christ died for our sins. It's the core of the Christian faith. And it concerns, notice there, the death of Christ for our sins. Why did Christ die, by the way? Christ died, His motivation was love for us. He loved us. He loves you. He loves me. He loves every person, the most wicked person you could think of today. Jesus Christ came and died for them. He loves them. The love is not a syrupy, emotional, passing type thing. The love is agape love, a love that cares about the other person so much that it sacrifices itself for them. And so Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for us. He demonstrated his love by going to the cross. You know, I look around. I would never know looking at nature that God loves me. Sometimes the sun shines and everything's great. Sometimes it's freezing and raining and ugly. I wouldn't know God's love if I did through nature. Sometimes nature produces a hurricane. Sometimes nature produces storms. Sometimes nature destroys life. I'd never know about God's love looking at nature. I'd never know about God's love looking at people. But I know God's love. The one thing that absolutely convinces me that God loves me is I look at the cross where Jesus Christ came and hung there and paid for my sins. And that lets me know His love is a love that will never change. And then it says that Christ died for our sins. Note, every word is important here, according to the Scripture. According to the Scripture. So that the death of Jesus Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. That's what that refers to. That a Messiah is going to come, and He's going to pay the penalty for mankind's sin and folly, and He's going to do it in one act on the cross. And so in Genesis 3.15, in the Garden of Eden, that far back, Almighty God said, and the seed of the woman, 
a woman without a man, a virgin birth, the seed of that one person who was born without a man, the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent, shall crush the head of, of Satan himself, and Christ will die for the sins of the world. And in Psalm number 22, there's verse after verse after verse of description of the death of Christ as he hung on the cross. And the psalm was written 1,000 years before Jesus ever came to the earth, penned by David. Psalm number 22, remember, you can read the story of the cross right there. And then there's that wonderful prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Boy, it's awful for him, but boy, isn't that not glorious for us? Isn't that good news? He was wounded for my sins and my transgressions. So Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. That's the heart of the gospel, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. I read a story in a magazine about a man out in California, I think it was, or Washington. And he took his little 12-year-old girl and his 11-year-old boy, and he took them out camping, and they went up on Mount Rainier there, which is 14,000 feet. And they were well up the mountain, eight, nine, 10,000 feet, and a blizzard came, unexpected, unannounced. Nobody had forecasted. And, and the, the snow was, was uh, so heavy that they said they couldn't even see five or six feet in front of them. The wind was blowing 60 miles an hour. They were not expecting that. They were not equipped for that. He, he was afraid to move because he couldn't see anything in the blizzard, and he could have fallen off of a precipice, and they would have died. And so he, he very gingerly tapped out about a six-foot circle, and he pitched the tent that they had there, and the kids had sleeping bags, and he didn't have one. And so he stationed the little girl in the back and the little boy next to her, and then he, without his sleeping bag, did the best he could to hold the flaps of the tent together, and he stretched out to go to sleep. Three days later, they found the children. They were alive, but the father was dead, frozen to death. And they interviewed the children, and the little 12-year-old girl said this, I didn't know how much my daddy loved me, but my daddy died to save my life. That's the substitutionary death. That's the picture of a substitutionary death. A daddy laying down his life for his two children. But Jesus Christ died for everyone. The infinite God, only an infinite person could die for everyone. And the infinite God died for an infinite number of people. He was my substitute. He went to the cross and he took my sins. And God punished him, not to be vindictive, but that justice for sin would be served and that every sin would be paid for. James Denny was the famous Scottish preacher. I have a number of his books. One of the greatest theologians and intellects I've ever really read after. 
And James Denny said, where there is no atonement, no payment for sin, there is no gospel. To preach the love of God with no relation to sin or to preach the forgiveness of sin is the free gift of God while the death of Christ has no special significance assigned to it is not to preach the gospel at all. You can't pr- there is no good news until we understand that Christ paid for our sins and now we can have good news. I've heard preachers preach on the love of God and never mention the cross. It's superficial. It means nothing to me. It's only when I look at the cross that I fully understand the full expression of the love of God for me. Christ died for my sins. He died for your sins. Personalize it. Don't, don't spread it around this auditorium. Think in your mind, Christ died for me. He loved me that much that he would do that. Note with, with me real quickly now, number two here. In verse 4, he was buried. And that's important because you bury dead people. His burial for three days is powerful, powerful evidence that he was in fact dead. Years ago, the liberals came out with this theory called the swoon theory, that somehow Christ hit loss of blood and shock and so on, near death and deeply unconscious, was carried to the grave, and they closed the door, and the coolness of the sepulcher and the and, and lying there and resting, he revived somehow that he wasn't really dead. But he was dead. He was there three days, buried. My daddy had a phrase he used to use. I guess it's a West Virginia phrase. He said about somebody, he's graveyard dead. I said, Dad, graveyard dead? What does that mean? That means he's really dead. He's dead dead, graveyard dead. Let me tell you, Jesus was graveyard dead, wasn't he? He was dead for three days and three nights he lay there. And then, look in verse 4 again. It says that he rose again the third day. And again, it puts that emphasis on according to the Scripture. And so, he rose from the dead. Job predicted that. That was prophesied, Job 19.25. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that in the latter day he will stand upon the earth. And after the skin worms have devoured my flesh, I will see him who I will see for myself with my own eyes. He understood there was to be a resurrection. And you can go to other passages, Psalm 16, thou wilt not allow the Lord Jesus Christ to suffer corruption. His body is not going to lie there and deteriorate. He's going to be raised from the dead, prophesied according to the Scriptures. A literal, physical resurrection of the body. The liberals used to preach, and some of them still do, I'm sure, that Christ's body died. There was no physical resurrection, but that His Spirit arose. Well, that makes no sense at all. His spirit never died. The soul doesn't die. The spirit doesn't die. It's the body that died. It was a physical death and a physical, literal resurrection of that body. There's a fourth thing I want you to see. Often people don't mention it. 
But go to verse 5, and he was seen. He was seen. That's important to the gospel. He was seen of Cephas. Cephas is Peter, of course. You know, another name for him. And then he was seen of James, and he was seen of all the apostles, it says. And you remember Jesus appearing there to them on the first resurrection day, the evening. And they were present, everybody except Thomas. And the next week, Thomas came, so they all saw him. The phrase I really always like and I emphasize so frequently in my messages, I think it should be, is in verse 6. He was seen of above 500 brethren at once. Over 500 people saw the living, resurrected, physical Christ. Now, what is important about that is how many witnesses, how many eyewitnesses does it take to convict a person or to establish a fact in a court of law? Well, two, maybe three, four would be bountiful. 500? Overwhelming. What fact of history has ever had 500 eyewitnesses except for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? So what is the good news? Let's define the gospel now. Christ died for our sins, verse 3. Verse 4, he was buried for three days. Verse 4, he was he arose from the dead, and verse 5, he was seen of over 500 eyewitnesses. That's the gospel. Go back to verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. You can't miss that. Now, let me show you one other thing here right quick, and that is there are four unique qualities then of the gospel that I draw logically out of this, and scripturally as well. Number one, if you're taking notes with me, is the good news is objective. It's objective. I really want, if you're a Christian member of our church, I really want you to get this because I don't think most people get this in our culture. It's just being whittled away. The good news is objective. I mean by that, and it's not subjective. I mean when I say it is objective, that the gospel is a set of facts to be believed. It's a set of facts. The gospel is not a myth. It was established by over 500 eyewitnesses. The gospel is not a fable. It's not a legend. The gospel is not a rumor. The gospel is not a philosophy. The gospel is even beyond that, you can even say it's not just a doctrine. The gospel is not a theory, and I can't think of any more words. But the gospel is none of that stuff. The gospel is a set of facts of what Jesus Christ has done for mankind. It's not driven by emotion. doesn't matter how you feel about it. Some people are euphoric about it. Some people get depressed about it. But it has nothing to do with the way you feel. It's what Jesus Christ did on a cross, and in the following three days, 2,000 years ago, and how you feel about it, whether you get 
holy goosebumps or whether you don't want to hear it, it doesn't matter. It is a fact of history. It's not driven by emotion or feelings or personal experiences. Let me tell you, we really need to get this. It's not going to church. It's not nothing that you've done here today has anything to do with the gospel other than what I'm saying right now. It's not worship. It's not praise. It's not music unless we're singing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 80% of the, quote, gospel songs are not gospel songs. They are religious songs, sacred songs, spiritual songs. They're not about the gospel. I, I want you to really, uh, you're looking at me a little bit with the deer in the headlight look right now, like, wow, he's just wiped out everything, hadn't he? Just about everything except the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ. I want you to walk out of here today knowing the gospel. It's not going to church. It's not prayer. Are you beginning to figure out the gospel has nothing to do with Christians? The gospel has nothing to do with Christians. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ and what he did for us. It's about his gift to us the good news of his love and his work of atonement and resurrection for us. You know why I emphasize that? I've heard so many people say, oh, I, Brother Bill, I'd be, a, I'd be a Christian if there weren't so many hypocrites. And I say, what has that got to do with it? No, you wouldn't. That's not why you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian because you don't want to be a Christian. You see, Christians ought to make Christianity attractive, but they can't make it creditable. The best person you've ever known doesn't add credibility to the gospel. The gospel is what it is. It's a set of facts that the Son of God came, died on the cross for sin, was buried, rose again, and in that we stand. I hear preachers make people promises, and I read tracts where they say, oh, if you get saved, this is going to happen, and that's going to happen. I don't promise you that. I'm not going to tell you that if you trust Christ, it will mend your marriage, because I know some awfully godly people that have gone through a divorce. I'm not going to promise you that if you trust Christ, you'll have more money Oh, you will you cut out some things you're spending on maybe that are not right before you got saved, but I'm not going to promise you that. I'm not a prosperity preacher. I'm not going to promise you that if you trust Jesus Christ, he's going to cure your illness. And somebody's sitting here today, and maybe you're dealing with cancer, and you say, oh, man, I wonder if the Lord won't heal me of my cancer if I get saved or if I trust Christ. I can't promise you that. I don't know. I would like to tell you that. I can't tell you that if you get saved, it'll cure your sickness. I can't even promise you that if you get saved, you'll be happy. Because I've met some godly people 
that dealt all their life with depression and unhappiness. See, we shouldn't take the gospel and the hope that the gospel gives and extrapolate it out here and make a bunch of promises to people that the Bible doesn't make for them. I can tell you this, that if you trust Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. You will have forgiveness of sin. You will have peace with God. You will have a new power in your life that you've never had before. I can promise you all of those things. That's what the gospel will do for people. I can't promise you a lot of the other things. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an objective fact. Don't miss that. Number two, the gospel of Christ is finished. The good news is finished. The final words of the Lord Jesus on the cross are what? It is finished. The word he used there, many of you know this, we've taught this in our evangelism courses, is the word is tetelestai. And the word had the idea of it is paid. Like you would write on an invoice, paid in full. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said, it's paid. What was paid? All the sin debt of humanity for all of time. So the gospel is a finished transaction. It's sufficient. There's nothing else you need to do. It is complete. The gospel is the full and final payment for sin. Number three, the good news is proven. And I've already gone into it, but after his resurrection, he was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses, which makes Christianity unique because there is no living Buddha. There's no living Allah. There's no living God of the Zoroastrians or of the Hindus. Christianity is unique. It has the only living Savior of any religion ever proclaimed on this earth. So Christianity is objective. The gospel is objective. It's completed. It's finished. It's over. There's nothing to add to it. I hear people talk about the full gospel. That's it. Right there is the full gospel. Chapter 15, 1 through 5 or 6. There's the full gospel. Don't add anything to it. It's proven. And the last thing, it's unchanging. Turn in your Bible to the right, to the book of Galatians. Just uh, first book after 2 Corinthians there. Turn with me there in chapter 1. My point is, the good news is unchanging. The good news is objective. It's finished. It's proven. And it's unchanging. Look in Galatians 1 and go down to verse number 8. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, any other form of the gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let the curses of the Bible be upon him. And then he repeats himself. As I said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, 
And that which you have received, let him be accursed. The gospel is unchanging. And over 2,100 years ago, Paul says, if an angel comes and sits on the foot of your bed at night, and you think you've seen an angel, and he tells you something is the gospel other than what I've preached to you in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, then you're going to be under the curses of God. There is but one gospel. It's objective. It's finished. It's proven. It's unchanging. In Revelation chapter 14, we're near the end of the tribulation period, and an angel comes from heaven, and he goes across the earth, and he preaches what the passage there says, the everlasting gospel, everlasting gospel, the only gospel that there's ever been and ever will be, the gospel of the grace of God. Now, I've done everything I know to do to persuade you in what the gospel is. Let me, let me ask you something. How should we respond to it? What's going to be our response to it this morning? Well, first of all, if you've never trusted Christ, you need to believe it. You need to believe it, and I mean really believe it. I mean to stake your soul on it, not to trust your baptism and your church membership and your good works and your good life and your fam family tradition and whatever it is you're trusting in. Jettison all of that. One thing, cast your soul, stake your soul upon what Christ did for you in those six lonely hours at the cross and the fact that he came out of that grave three days later. Look in Romans chapter 10 with me here for a moment. Romans chapter 10, and one of the clearest places in the Bible of how to trust Christ, how to benefit from the gospel is Romans 10. And we read in verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, there's the gospel See, The raising from the dead really is the keystone of it because that infers that Christ died, of course, already. And so if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. I was driving home the other night, and I had Adrian Rogers on the radio, and I was listening to Adrian preach from Romans chapter 10 here. And I already had my message about two-thirds uh, completed, I guess. And then I heard him give an illustration that I've used myself before and very common. A lot of preachers have used it. But it's the story of a, of a missionary whose name was John G. Payton. And John G. Payton went out to the South Sea Islands, to Tahiti and down there, Hawaii, and down, way down the South Sea Islands. And John G. Payton went there back, oh, in the 1800s, late 1800s. They had never heard the gospel on those islands. And Payton decided after preaching to them for a year or two and learning their language, he wanted to write a translation of the Bible for them. They had no scripture. None of them could read. He was teaching them their own language and how to read it because they didn't even have a written language at the point. 
And he was translating the, the New Testament to them. And he came to Romans 10 and verse 9. That if thou shalt believe in thy heart. And, and he talked to all of the natives there. And they, and they didn't even have a word that corresponds to believing with all your heart. And he said, how in the world am I ever going to get this concept to them? What it means to believe with all of your heart. He was working in his, in his hut there. And one of the native men who worked with him came in. He had been on a long journey. It was hot. And the native man came and sat down in the chair across from John G. Payton. And he said he just kind of flopped down into the chair like you would do if you were tired. And he put his feet up on another chair. And he sat there. And he said, whew. It sure does feel good to sit down in that chair. And Peyton said, what did you just do? What word was that you used? And so John G. Peyton translated the word believe as it's good to sit down in the chair, to completely rely upon and depend upon and trust like you would do when you flop down in a chair with exhaustion. And that's what he said it meant in that language. You know, that's what it means. When I say you're trusting Christ, I don't mean you just vaguely believe intellectually in, in, in the stories you've heard from the Bible. I mean to trust in Christ is to completely cast yourself upon him. It has the idea of relying upon completely and resting upon and depending on what he did for you in the gospel. I hope you believe that today. If you genuinely have cast yourself upon that, the Bible says you have eternal life. You're saved. And if you've never done that, I want you to come in this invitation I'm about to start in a moment. And I want you to come and one of our staff pastors will be standing here at the front. And we'll take the Bible and we'll sit down and we'll talk and explain, answer your questions. We'll pray with you until you can say, I understand and I'm trusting Christ only, solely, completely, fully as the satisfaction I need to bring to God for my sins. Our response to it, if we're not saved, is to believe it. If we are Christians, it's to tell it. It's to tell it. How could there be such wonderful news that the Son of God came and suffered for me like that? And how could there be such wonderful news and I would withhold it from my friends, my family, my customers, my neighbors, the people in my life that I daily encounter, how in the world could I not share with them this wonderful good news? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. Christ died on a cross, hung on a cross, to bring everyone who is separated from God by their sin into a right relationship with him. That's the gospel. Our heads are bowed.